soldiers who are killed in combat, there's more news coverage than if a contractor is killed in a combat environment. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Mercenary groups have been in the news a lot recently, for all the wrong reasons. The Wagner Group, of course, was a key fighting force in Ukraine until its leader, Evgeny Prigozhin, attempted a mutiny and was then banished to Belarus. Since then, however, Prigozhin has made some appearances back in Russia, and Wagner continues to make inroads in certain African countries, including Mali and the Central African Republic. But 20 years before Wagner was tapped to fight in Ukraine, the United States turned to the private security firm Blackwater during its occupation of Iraq. Like Wagner, Blackwater is a private for-profit entity that was fighting alongside one of the most powerful militaries in the world. And also, like Wagner, Blackwater was credibly accused of war crimes and crimes against humanity. So why is it that countries turn to private groups like this during wartime? I put that question to Dr. Benjamin Koch, Associate Professor of Political Science at Mississippi State. He is a researcher who studies security privatization, including private military contractors and mercenaries. We kick off by briefly defining our terms. That is, what do we mean by mercenary and by private security and military company? We then have a long discussion about the corporate structure of the Wagner Group and its deployment in Africa and Ukraine. And Benjamin Koch compares Wagner today to Blackwater 20 years ago to help answer the fundamental question of why powerful countries turn to private groups in times of war. Today's episode is a great example of one of my favorite kinds of episodes we routinely feature on Global Dispatches, which is bringing policy-relevant academic research to the Global Dispatches listening audience. And today's episode was produced in partnership with the Carnegie Corporation of New York. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, if you have suggestions of people I should interview, topics I should cover, academic research I should dive into please visit globaldispatches.org. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our newsletter, which pairs well with the podcast content we produce twice a week. 
subscribe to the newsletter. It's free, and I'd love to hear from you. Now, here is my conversation with Dr. Benjamin Koch, Associate Professor of Political Science at Mississippi State. Can I just have you define some of the key terms that we'll be discussing throughout this conversation, including you know, what distinguishes a mercenary group from, say, a private military contractor and the like? So since the rise of what I typically term security privatization, which kind of covers the continuum of these types of actors, scholars, international lawyers, as well as state legislatures have tried to define these entities in useful ways. We think of mercenaries both in terms of the classic historic definition of individuals who are seeking private gain that are not party to whatever conflict that they're working in. And these historic examples go back millennia. The United Nations does have a convention banning the use and hiring of mercenaries, and they have very specific criteria for what constitutes a mercenary. Kind of for our purposes, it's the private gain. It's the actors who are not party to whatever the conflict is. They are not associated with a country's military establishment. So they're separate. They're a non-entity there. And the UN also has two dimensions that I think are really worth thinking through in this area, which is an individual who's locally recruited or internationally recruited that is working to overthrow a government or is working to undermine the integrity of the state, like the territorial integrity of the state. That's what they think about when we use the term mercenaries. Now, in popular media coverage, we often will use mercenaries for almost any group that's carrying a gun. And so we kind of blend those together. The private military and security companies, and one of the key differences between them and mercenaries is the corporate structure, is that PMFCs are incorporated. There's several countries that typically house them, but they are a company. Sometimes they're publicly traded. They're on some nation's stock exchange. Oftentimes they're privately held. We are now actually seeing private equity firms purchase private military and security companies so they can be different types of private ownership. But that corporate structure where individuals are, in the absolute sense, they are seeking individual gain, right? They want a paycheck, but that's not really what we mean. What we mean in this context is that the company's goal is not individual gain. The company's goal is to have financial revenues and to sustain itself just like any other company in any other industry. That's a huge difference between a mercenary group which is just a collection of individuals pursuing their individual gains versus a private military and security company that are focused on the corporate entity. What are some of the other nuances? So some of the other nuances that are mostly codified in international law are differences in services and what these different actors can do. Private military and security companies, they do not conduct offensive military operations. They do use defensive capabilities in terms of being able to project and utilize militarized violence in a defensive capacity. That's quite distinct from mercenary groups, which can be hired 
really for any kind of military purposes, from what we think of as the tip of the spear, actually leading military columns or being the first on the ground. Private security companies typically follow whatever military it is that is taking in action. That distinction is one of the other key aspects because the rest of the services that mercenaries and private military and security companies provide overlap quite a bit. It's training, it can be logistics, and logistics can be everything from delivering ammunition and fuel to food, to showers, to the internet, whatever those services are, as well as training security personnel in a range of capabilities, whether that is training a military to be more effective as a military or training police forces or bodyguards or anything within that security and military sphere. So using those definitions and that rubric, could you briefly explain the history of the Wagner Group, which obviously has come into prominence in recent years and months? When we think of Wagner, there's a corporate structure. There's actually lots of companies that constitute what we would think of in the United States as the Wagner Working Group or corporation because they use shell companies inside and outside of Russia to conduct their business. And so this organization was founded in 2014 by Bergosian, who is famously known as the caterer because his initial contact and according to several media outlets, how they fund some of their operations come through catering contracts from the Kremlin. So they overpay for catering because that's a legal service. And then they turn it around and do some kind of paramilitary operation in a different part of the world. So since 2014, Wagner has expanded dramatically, not just in terms of services, but in terms of scope and scale. So the number of personnel under its control, as well as the number of countries that it's operating in. And so Prigozhin was able to leverage contacts directly with Putin, but also throughout the Kremlin to create an organization that largely follows the private military and security company model, because it is a company They are incorporated in Russia, but that too is interesting because under Russian law, private military companies are banned, even though the headquarters, well, the former headquarters is in St. Petersburg and it's this giant building and it's covered in glass and everyone knows it's there and they knows what they're doing. But so there's definitely a veneer of attempt at corporate aspects, but there's also that mercenary feature of Wagner's group. So when we look at their first operations in 2014, kind of 2015, in the Dumbass region, where kind of famously the Little Green Men moniker started to show up, some of them certainly were Wagner personnel. Unlike what the Russian government claims, they're not local personnel. They're brought in, they're trained, and they're conducting what the UN would classify as operations to overthrow a government and undermine the territorial integrity of another country. So under that portion of the UN's definition on the convention banning the use and hiring of mercenaries, it's a mercenary group. So when we hear it in the media, it's almost ubiquitously in the Western media going to be mercenary. Russia didn't acknowledge they existed really at all up until the last few months. And so when we start to think through this, I personally classify them as a mercenary group because of the individual gains that people are starting to accrue through the organization. This is seen most clearly with Prigozhin's visit to prisons in Russia to recruit prisoners who were going to have their sentences commuted, so to speak, 
This is basically the paraphrase of him. You can go to the Ukraine and fight for us. If you try to desert when you're in the Ukraine, we'll kill you. Or you can stay in prison. There aren't private military and security companies other than Wagner who recruit that way. And so to me, they get classified under the mercenary banner because they've actively worked to overthrow governments. So the fact that they use corporations isn't so much to allow for transparency or regulation or accountability. It's to shift money around. It's to move personnel. It's to avoid sanctions. It's to establish mining companies. Wagner has established a fairly effective business model of trading natural resources for whatever services they're providing. So the contracts that have been dug up by journalists for in Syria, Wagner helped capture at least three, maybe four of the most lucrative oil fields in Syria. And part of their compensation was up to 25% of the revenue or the production of those fields. So they have this constellation of shell companies that engage in various profit-seeking ventures, including mineral extraction and oil extraction, which you know presumably like enriches Prigozhin and helps to also fund his mercenary work in Ukraine and beyond. What do we know about how the role of the Wagner Group in Ukraine is different or distinct from the role of the regular Russian armed forces? What we've seen on the battlefield is both effectiveness and gross negligence and ineffectiveness. And let me put that in the context. So we've had both Department of Defense and Department of State officials over the last year and a half identify different Wagner units as being highly effective. These are a lot of the contractors that have been pulled out of their locations across Africa and Syria, Libya, Mali, CAR, places where they built up experience, where they sent their pros so to speak, to do their training and do their operations and manage these mines and other profit-generating ventures. But we also see the ineffectiveness. So the most recent estimate from the White House, at least, this is about three weeks old, was about 10,000 contractors and about 40,000 convicts. And those convicts were the ones that were sent to the front line. It's documented on TikTok and other locations where people are taking these videos and media reports who are right on the front ground. These waves of attacks suffered egregious casualties. It was like a cannon fodder situation. And the ex-cons were perceived to be better cannon fodder than regular Russian troops? Absolutely. For two reasons. First, there's a political accountability issue that we can absolutely get into when we think about security privatization. But the first is that they're not Russian soldiers dying. So they're not receiving the same kind of news coverage. This incidentally also happens in the United States. Soldiers who are killed in combat, there's more news coverage than if a contractor is killed in a combat environment. So there's less political response to that in terms of, we don't know what the total casualties are for Wagner Group. Like There are estimates, of course, but if you look at the range of estimates that are produced and publicly released, at least, by US intelligence and DOD, The range of Wagner casualties is actually quite large compared to the possible range of Russian casualties that they release. So while they're both estimates, the uncertainty around the Russian soldier casualties is much smaller than it is about how many soldiers or personnel Wagner has lost. So there's that political accountability issue. The second is the training and 
when you're trying to take a position with untrained personnel, it actually horrifyingly almost reminds me of Stalingrad. And this was some of the comparisons that were made by people in the Ukraine, where people were being sent forward without training, without capability, without arms, without the tools necessary, and you're just expected to find it, right? Go forward and figure it out. You're not going to want to do that with troops you've invested in that are well-trained, but maybe not well-equipped. And so the effectiveness of Wagner is very much evident, especially as we get closer to the insurrection or rebellion. Most of their units took such heavy losses that Bergosian and potentially the Russians may have also been firing at their own personnel. Prigozhin just said, that's enough. Like, my company can't take it anymore, so to speak. So recently I attended a conference with CIA Director William Burns, who himself is a former U.S. ambassador to Russia. And he said something interesting, or two things that are interesting, really. He said that it is his assessment that Putin is trying to separate Prigozhin from the Wagner group. And also that Putin truly believes that revenge is a dish served cold, suggesting that it's Putin's long-term plan to off Wagner. But <laughs> before he gets there, to separate Prigozhin from his companies, does that strike you as an accurate assessment of where things might stand now? Yes, in two important ways for our discussion. The first is that separation, which in a lot of the commentary, a lot of the scholars who study private security, and this was before the rebellion, somewhere high up the Russian chain of command, started publicly saying, well, we need to make sure Wagner are signing with, contracts are signed with the Russian government or they're within our military command structure. They started using language of, I, I'd almost call it language of absorption, which is directly taking Bergosian's profit generator away. That is one of those things where it's not a company, right? Taking the, the, the ability to project power, threaten progression at a level much more than any kind of physical damage caused by Russian bombardments or Russian attacks. Because without the protection of the Kremlin, his entities fall apart completely, right? It becomes almost impossible to move mo money around. It becomes very difficult to have the technical capabilities that Wagner needs. Because Wagner, I would say as a mercenary group, utilized Russian infrastructure throughout the world. And so unless they built it, they're on Russian bases, they're in Russian depots, they're utilizing Russian equipment, Russian army, Russian military, like Russian owned, not just Russian made. And the fact that it was in the public, you know, that it was for public consumption between these actors said that underneath it must have been churning at a very high level. Not necessarily meaning that the Kremlin wanted to implement it, but this was a huge issue. The second thing on that argument is that Progrosian is still alive. I don't mean to be flippant or demure, but... One would expect him not to be. Yeah. And it was Bill Burns' assessment that like he's not long for this earth, but that Putin is biding his time. I wouldn't be trusting any food source. And again, it, it makes me wonder too, and I wonder if we'll, how long it'll take before we know some of the inner workings on these things is, did he expect to have more support from the Kremlin or from actors in the field, and it all fell away because it was quite a different, I mean, obviously it's not something we've seen recently, but given the corporate structure, and because the US government and so many other governments have sanctioned Wagner companies, specific companies, and it's illegal to operate, so to speak, in Russia, 
there's no protections for Bergosian if he's on the wrong side of that effort. Where for a private military and security company, especially one housed in the United States, they typically incorporate in Delaware, like most companies. And the legal system of the United States is often what is used when they sign contracts with other actors. So they say it has to be adjudicated in the United States. And those are legal protections that we would find in any other industry. You know, you want to mitigate your risks as much as possible. None of that applies to Wagner in Russia. So I'm glad you brought up the United States because I wanted to switch gears a little bit and have you sort of explain the similarities or differences between Wagner's role in Ukraine and Blackwater's role in the U.S. occupation of Iraq. And, you know, just to remind people, Blackwater was the major international private military security contractor and, you know, had a major contract to support the U.S. military and the U.S. government during its long occupation of Iraq following the 2003 invasion. What do you assess to be some of the similarities or how do you approach understanding Blackwater as opposed to Wagner? When we think about the similarities, the first one that I think about is actually perception, which is that since they are both armed and they both were in combat zones, that they're very similar actors. That's partly true in the way that both of them can leverage military-type capabilities, from helicopter gunships to well-trained ex-military personnel. But there's significant differences in the types of services and the overall mission of the organization. So Blackwater's contracts, especially with the Department of State, they were authorized to carry weapons. We have like the Nisar Square massacre. They killed 17 Iraqi civilians wounded. Yeah, this was this was a, a sort of famous Blackwater massacre in which they were ostensibly yeah. protecting State Department officials or, or diplomats, but opened fire in a square in Baghdad, killing some 17 people. Several Blackwater people were convicted in U.S. courts of mm -hmm. murder, but later pardoned by President Trump. Yes, four of them were. We can see some major difference in tactics between Wagner and. Blackwater. There's a scholar, his name is Fitzsimmons, who wrote excellent analysis on Blackwater's culture versus other private security companies that were providing armed security, is the way I would phrase those. Blackwater had a very aggressive approach to everything. Like whatever the line was, they wanted to get right to it, if not tow over it. And that includes shooting at vehicles, high speed mobility, helicopter gunship cover. The lines are very close. The difference, main difference would be like Wagner is hired to go capture that city, right? Go capture that hill. Those are what we traditionally think of as military specific operations. Blackwater wasn't conducting those. Blackwater was conducting personnel protection for like Paul Brimmer, who was the coalition provisional authority, essentially the head of state for Iraq during his time during the transition. That's quite different, even though obviously casualties and civilian fatalities can happen in both contexts. Wagner is more of, especially in the Ukraine, in the most recent invasion, go and capture, which is different from what they were doing in 2014, 2015. So when they invaded the Donbass region, 
there was some initial capture and control for territory, but it was also about training. The Wagner also has a large disinformation campaign capability. They have troll farms. They are very sophisticated in their use of the internet, social media, information packaging, information sequencing. The U.S. does hire companies to operate in cyber, but arguably this is quite different. It comes back to that territorial integrity question as well as if they're a mercenary, are they trying to overthrow a government? So Blackwater doesn't exist today. Like, What came of it? What happened to Blackwater after NYSAR Square? It had to change its name, changed its name multiple times. It became XE Services, then it became Academia, then it merged with Triple Canopy, which is another company that was on that end of the spectrum of services, more militarized services. And eventually, the Constellus Holdings is the merger between Blackwater and Triple Canopy. They're eventually bought by a private equity firm. And so what that tells us here is that in the marketplace, when companies violate norms and they massacre civilians, there are huge business repercussions for their operations. So much so that you know Blackwater went through all of these successions and then still basically went bankrupt. Wagner Group's brutality is not checked by any kind of market forces. There's the horrifying videos that you can find of Wagner, how they treat prisoners, when people have stepped out of line disciplinarily, you know, there's no repercussions because they have one client, the Russian government, or a local government supported by the Russian government. And so the brutality that they apply, especially to civilians, you know, those allegations of using rape to control territories, of outright theft, of murder, of torture from multiple locations and multiple sources, multiple areas, their business model was only threatened when they turn the tanks and turn the armored personnel carriers towards Moscow. Russia didn't care that they were doing all of that as long as they were obtaining their objective. That, again, is a key distinction between organization like Blackwater when it existed and Wagner today. So you bring up all these interesting comparisons between Blackwater and Wagner. Why is it that these entities exist in the first place? I mean, here you have the two most powerful militaries in the world the United States and Russia, turning to private companies to assure at least part of their security objectives. Big picture, like why is that? This idea of flexibility, both of these militaries, and it should be stated, China has increasingly used private security companies. They're almost exclusively Chinese private military and security companies to protect its infrastructure around the world. Across the board, states are using security privatization efforts because it provides flexibility in two contexts. The first is this idea of kind of technical skill. You just go get it when you need it. The other is that you only have to spend when you need it. So having the standing military capability to do X, Y, and Z can become quite expensive. And so contractors are flexible. But there's also two other dynamics that really need to be said. And the first is arguably political accountability. That applies both to democracies and to Russia because there's a tremendous amount of scholarship and research on the effect of casualties on support for the government, on popularity, on re-election, on a host of outcomes. And so there is an important part for all of us to kind of think through on political accountability may go down when private security contractors are being used. 
And I say may go down because we have some evidence that newspaper reportings generally are less. We know that's true. But some of the most recent evidence does show that if you call a person a contractor or if you call them like the person's nationality matters for how people think about that casualty, well, that's political accountability. Well, there's been quite a bit of work on how privatization undermines democratic values in particular. So we think of transparency. It's really hard to track them. It's really hard to monitor them. We don't really have systems in place to know for sure what contractors are doing all the time. In the United States context, Congress especially has gotten much better. So it's gotten much better over the last two decades. But it took Congress 10 years, so to speak, to kind of want to regulate or be involved or have that ability to say what is going on with our responsibilities for how we're spending some of these monies. The last one that we think about is public consent. And this definitely hits at Russia in the current format and to the United States as well, is how long can a government sustain a foreign military operation if casualties mount at significant rates? And so if we look at the United States during Iraq in particular, you can track support for the war and casualties and look at these different things. What happens if you double them or triple them or quadruple them or take all of the estimated casualties for all contractors hired by anybody? That changes the number of casualties dramatically, which will change support. In Russia's case, it's the same. When we think of some of the information efforts that the Ukrainian government has done to make known how many Russians are being killed, I don't know if there's any work on how people think about convicts being killed in military action, right? But I suspect that it's less than Russian soldiers because they're different classes and different entities and, and people think differently about, you know, nationalism is an important variable in all of this and how, how people start to think about those things. So we have that political accountability question for why there's a rise. We have the flexibility question, which really drove the United States. The last one is this economic question. And then there's a policy. So it's like three and a half, I guess. There's an economic component to contractors, which is you have an immediate upfront cost that is pretty substantial, but we don't really know what the long-term consequences are for a contractor's cost to a society or to a government. And let me put some context around that. Think about healthcare. So if a soldier is wounded in a US operation, the VA and the VA benefits come into play. If a contractor is wounded, they have to have insurance after a certain point in Iraq, regulation ensured that they had to have insurance. But we still don't know what those long-term costs are and who's going to bear them and what that might look like. The other area that I think is worth mentioning for why we have seen this transition are policy, and it really only applies to Russia in this particular context, is if you have a paramilitary organization or an organization that is separate, but is also attached or dependent or has the same objectives as the government, Russia gets a tremendous amount of deniability by using to project its foreign policy objectives. And we see this specifically in 2014, because if it's Russian soldiers invading Ukraine, that's an invasion. There's codified law. There's lots of things in the international system that help us interpret that. If it's actually people in the Donbass rising up and trying to overthrow their Ukrainian government, we have a lot that says, you know, there's codification, there's laws, we know a lot about how to go about these things. What we 
didn't have a lot of space for is what happens when a government is sponsoring a mercenary group to go in and foment territorial integrity acquisition that in any other context is clearly a paramilitary operation. So Russia can deny, oh, well, we're not doing it, even though we now actually have contracts have come to light that some of the funding that's been there. Those are all benefits and reasons why we start to see security privatization to such a degree that we have. There's been a global learning curve on some of these. So there's different motivations for different countries. Each of these can be in play for the other countries. And as you start to see China's footprint in the use of their own private military and security companies abroad, right now they're more static. They're protecting infrastructure. They're doing some kind of basics of training, but it's still China-centric, so to speak. What will be interesting is if this is an evolutionary process. So the U.S. starts it by kind of just thinking through how it wants to govern. It cascades through the government. Russia looks at Blackwater and other organizations and say, well, we can project power using non-state actors as well. How does China read that situation? How do other actors start to interpret what security privatization can do for them? Benjamin, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you. This is absolutely fascinating. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>